It's good to be back with each of you uh, this evening. This morning, I had the opportunity to be uh, speaking at the Frisco Church of Christ, where Brother Todd Creighton is uh, the minister, and he and Rose are out of town, and so uh, they extended the opportunity for me to come out and to be with them. It's good to be with other brethren, but it's always good to be back home, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be back with each of you this evening. I suppose that for many situations in life, there are expectations uh, that we feel need to be met. If you look at it from a sports perspective, if you are an Alabama Crimson Tide fan, you expect usually to go undefeated and to be hoisting the national championship trophy at the end of the year, don't you? And this year, obviously, uh, those expectations were, unfortunately for you, not met. Maybe if you are an Aggie fan, uh, maybe maybe you expected to do what you did this year and not make it to a bowl game at all. There's a lot of Aggie fans here that I didn't know that were here, so sorry about that, but just we'll, we'll roll with it. You know, when things like that happen or when things like that don't happen, you feel a certain way, don't you? You feel either happy or you feel either sad about it, depending on what your expectations were concerning that situation. On a more serious note, when you look at this from a secular perspective, if you hold a job and you're working for an employer, if you don't meet those specific expectations that are required of you to meet by the one who is employing you, then you face possibly being fired from your job. And obviously none of us want that to happen. For most things in life, there are expectations. And that is no different as it concerns the lives that you and I are to live as New Testament Christians. And I suppose it's a question that we need to continually ask ourselves throughout the year, throughout our lives. But I thought what better time to think about these things than the very beginning of a new year. As we go into this new year, 2023, we need to be considering the question, what does God expect of me? What does God require of me? What am I supposed to do if I'm going to be a faithful New Testament Christian? There's an idea that pops out into my mind really above everything else, and that is this idea of the fact that you and I are to be different from this world in which we live. And many of the things that we're going to look at tonight all center around this idea of you and I as New Testament Christians being different from those in this world. We look at passages like Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where the Bible there, Paul speaking to the church at Rome, tells them that they are not to be conformed, but rather they are to transform. They are not to be like the world around them. We can look at passages like 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, talking about those as Christians, the church, the ecclesia, those who are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We can look at passages like Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, talking about the fruit of the Spirit and how those are characteristics that we need to implement into our lives. We can look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, and talk about those Christian graces, those Christian characteristics that each of us need to be making sure that we are living out in our lives. We can look at passages like Philippians chapter 4, there in verse 8, talking about the things on which we are to dwell as New Testament Christians. When we look at things like this, we need to understand that these are not just mere facts that we are to memorize. They're not just words that we can put into a rhyme and put a tune to it and to sing in our Bible classes as young children. These are very real expectations that God has placed upon us within the description of exactly what the life of a Christian should look like. And if those expectations are not met, if those expectations are not lived out by you and I as New Testament Christians, then we will fall out of employment or we will fall out of fellowship 
with our Father in heaven. It ought to be the most important thing to us as Christians that we are individuals like David, who according to Acts chapter 13 and verse 22 was a man after God's own heart. David certainly wasn't perfect. And we're going to look at the life of David and some of the things that he did here in just a few moments. But David, throughout his life, at least for the most part, did all that he could to meet the expectations that were placed on him by God. Is that something that can be said of each of us here today? That you and I are doing all that we can to meet these expectations placed on us by our Creator. There's several things that we could focus on, but I want to think about five things this evening. Five things. Here's number one. When I think about what I'm supposed to do as a Christian, when I think about the expectations placed on me by God, the first thing I think about is this. I must be moldable like Timothy. I need to be moldable like Timothy. There are few relationships in the Bible, at least in my mind, that stand out more than this relationship between Paul and Timothy. We can look at relationships like David and Jonathan. We can look at relationships like Ruth and Naomi. We can look at Elijah and Elisha. All of these great friendships, these great relationships that we see throughout Scripture, and certainly they're good. Certainly we can take notes from those, and yet this relationship, just in my mind, between Paul and Timothy stands out above all of those. We talk about Timothy being the young protege, so to speak. Uh, This young individual that Paul was mentoring, the one that Paul was molding, the one that Paul was helping to form into a gospel preacher. We're talking about the one who was so greatly influenced by his mother and by his grandmother, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. The one who clung ever so closely to the apostle Paul and his teachings. Timothy was someone who was moldable. Paul helped shape and form him into being a great gospel preacher, one who would aid and help Paul in his ministry and he would be able to do things for the cause of Christ. But it didn't just come to Timothy, did it? Timothy didn't just wake up and suddenly be this way to where he was able to be molded by Timothy. There had to be some underlying characteristics in order for him to meet those expectations. And I think that there are some expectations that are good for us as well. In order for me to be moldable, the first thing I think about is this. I must be humble. If I am going to be moldable, I must first have an attitude of humbleness. It's often been said, and I've probably said it here before, that pride is the right hand of sin. And I suppose that's very true when we think about it. When you go back in the Bible, you go back through these accounts of history, you go all the way back to the Old Testament, and you walk yourself through even into the New Testament, when you look at these accounts of individuals who have sinned, who have transgressed the law of God, you boil it down to the main crux of the problem. And every single time, it is the problem of pride. Proverbs 16 and verse 18, the Proverbs writer said, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If I am to be prideful in my walk of life, I had better not be surprised when things come crumbling down around me because of my attitude. If I'm to be humble so that I can be molded into who I need to be, I'll have to be willing to put away any kind of pride that I might have in my life. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5, he said, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. 
I suppose learning to be humble is one of the hardest lessons, isn't it, for you and I to learn, for, for humans, for mankind to learn. Because so many times we feel like we can do it all on our own, don't we? So many times we feel like we don't need to ask for help or that we don't need to go to another source to try to help us accomplish whatever it is that we're doing. And yet, what does the very next verse say here in 1 Peter chapter 5? Verse 7, Peter continues and he says, casting all your care upon him. For he cares for you. If I have a humble attitude, I'm going to pray to God and allow myself to take my burdens, my struggles, my hardships, and I'm going to cast them onto him. If I want to be moldable, to be used and formed in the way that God expects me to be, I must first be humble. But then number two, I have to be willing to listen. I have to be willing to listen if I'm going to be moldable. Now, there's a big difference in hearing and listening, isn't there? And if you're a parent, you know exactly what it is that I'm talking about. And I know what is being talked about here, not from the sense of me being a parent, but from the sense of me being a child, because oftentimes I heard the things that my parents were telling me, but did I always listen to my parents? Did I always make application of the things they were telling me? Not, not all the time, and I think that's the situation with every single kid. When I look at Timothy, however, I know that Timothy was someone who not only heard, but he was someone who listened. We know that he was taught the scriptures from the time that he was a child. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. He said that from childhood, talking about Timothy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation, which is through Jesus Christ. We already stated, talking about his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice, how they had been teaching him the scriptures. And we also know that Paul had been teaching him for some time. But we know that Timothy wasn't just hearing it. We know that Timothy was listening, that he was making application of these things in his life because of what he was doing for the cause of Christ on behalf of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he says, for this reason I have sent who? Timothy, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. You can think about the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. There were times when Paul couldn't go be with the brethren that he wanted to be with. In fact, when you think about the book of Philippians, where was Paul when he was writing that letter? Paul was in prison. Paul couldn't get out. He couldn't go to these brethren but he knew that he could count on Timothy. He knew that Timothy could do his bidding and would go and do these things for the cause of Christ. And it was all because Timothy was someone who was willing to listen. He listened to the things and to the ones who were teaching him the gospel. There were expectations placed on Timothy by the Apostle Paul. And the only way that he met those expectations was because he was willing to listen. But the number three... If you and I are going to be moldable, we also have to be willing to trust. We have to be willing to trust. When you become moldable, mold, being that idea always is accompanied, almost always is accompanied with another idea, and that is change. And when change enters the picture, it can become quite daunting, can't it? Change can make your life stressful. It can make your life look bleak. And sometimes we don't know where it is that we need to go whenever this change happens in our lives. I don't know of anyone who just loves change whenever it happens in their lives. Some handle it better than others, but I don't think anyone really just loves the idea of change. We're all set in our ways. We all have 
things and ways that we think things need to be done. And when those things get turned upside down, sometimes we really just don't know what to do. But within this idea of change coming with being moldable, it also presents another idea, and that is an opportunity to showcase reliance. The opportunity for the one who is being molded and going through those changes with the ability to rely upon the one who is doing the molding. And that requires a full reliance upon him and upon our trust in God. Jeremiah 18 and verse 6, you and I are simply clay in the hands of God. We understand that God's going to take care of us. He's going to provide for us. God's going to be there for us. Psalm 18 and verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, trusting in God, relying on him that all things will work together for his good and for his glory. Proverbs 3, beginning of verse 5, we know this passage so well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. If you want to be moldable like Timothy, you and I have to be willing to be humble. We have to be willing to listen and we have to be willing to trust in Almighty God. Here's number two. If you and I are going to meet these expectations, we have to be willing to be bold, just like these three friends we read about in Daniel chapter three. I hope you open up your Bibles with me there. Daniel chapter three, we're going to spend just a moment doing some reading here in this particular uh, chapter. But before we get there, I want to kind of lay some context. You remember in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar uh, has just had a dream. And within this idea, he, he within this scenario, he can't really remember the dream and he doesn't know what the dream means. So what does he do? He, he calls his magicians, he calls all his sorcerers, and he says, I want you to come to me and I want you to tell me what the dream is. And then he says, I want you to interpret the dream. Tell me what the dream means. Well, all these magicians and these sorcerers, we know that they, they can't, they don't have the power to do that. And so they get together and they say, well, King, listen, listen, you tell us what the dream was and then we'll be able to interpret for you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is smarter than that. He knows that they're just going to make up something just to try to save their own necks. And so he says, no, I'm not going to. You tell me what it is and then you tell me what it means. Well, we know they can't. And so Nebuchadnezzar is angry. He, he is furious with, with, with the these individuals. And so he issues basically a death sentence for all of these people. But included in that group of people is a man by the name of Daniel. And so Daniel knows what's going on. He knows the context of the situation. So he goes to God in prayer. He asks God for help and God gives him the dream and he tells him exactly what it is the dream means. And so Daniel then goes to Nebuchadnezzar. He tells him the dream. He tells him the meaning and Nebuchadnezzar is happy. And so he promotes Daniel. And Daniel, I suppose in our words, puts in a good word for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that is what takes us here into Daniel chapter 3. Notice with me here, beginning in verse 1. We're going to do some reading through this chapter. Nebuchadnezzar the king here in chapter 3 and verse 1 made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has created this image, this, this great statue, some 90 feet tall, some 9 feet across. You just, you can't miss it if you're going by. Notice verse 2. King Nebuchadnezzar sent the word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3, so all of these individuals, if you drop down there to the middle of the verse, all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So essentially every single person, 
Every single person here is called together. They are told, we want you to come down. We want you to bow down and we want you to worship this great image that this king has set up. And among those called were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Notice, jump ahead to verse 7. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All right, what's the big deal here? What's the problem with what it is that they are doing? Think about a couple of passages in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 34 and verse 14. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Isaiah 45 and verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no God beside me. God has strictly commanded his people to have no other gods with them, to worship no other gods, to set up no other gods, and to worship him and only him as the one and true living God. And yet, what are these people doing? Falling down and worshiping this golden image. And all the people, all the nations, all the languages, every single person who is there is doing this, except who? Notice verse 12. There are certain Jews from there are certain Jews from, 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 excuse me, there are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. I can see the, you can see it now, can't you? Oh, great king. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. You set up this great image. You set up this huge image that everybody can see. You've called everybody down here, all the nations, all the people, all the languages, to gather together, to bow down, and to worship this great image. But king, oh king, there's three men who aren't doing what you're telling them to do. There's three people who are completely defying and rebelling against your order. King, what do you want us to do? Notice verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. I can see Nebuchadnezzar's face right now, can't you? Uh, So angry, so mad. It's like the cartoon, isn't it? Where, Where you see his face turning red, the steam beginning to come out of his ears. That's how angry Nebuchadnezzar is in this situation. Notice verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Verse 15. Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? He says, if you fall down, if you worship, if you do exactly what I'm telling you to do, great. Everything's good. You can go on your way. But he says, but if you don't, you're going to end up in the fiery furnace. Notice verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, notice this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You want to talk about somebody who's bold? You want to talk about somebody who has courage? People who don't care what's going on around them. People who don't care what might happen to them. People who stood their ground, who didn't conform, and who showcased boldness for God. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Notice verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. The expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more 
Then it was usually heated, and you remember the rest of the story. Nebuchadnezzar's mighty men of valor come, and they take the three men, they throw them into the furnace, but it's so hot it kills the, the mighty men of valor there. And you know, you and I know there, you look at verse 21, they're cast into the furnace, they're there left to die. And in verse 25, something peculiar happens, right? A fourth person appears in the furnace. None of them are burned. None of them are hurt. And they don't even come out, come out smelling like smoke. I don't know of a better picture of individuals who showcase an attitude of boldness than these three individuals right here. Certainly, they had to have been worried. That's just the human aspect of it all, isn't it? They had to have been worried about their health. They had to have had a thought of what might happen to them physically if they were to stand up against this king. And yet, despite the worry for their physical well-being, their boldness allowed them to be an instrument used to glorify God. Notice verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Brothers and sisters, God expects me to be bold for him. Paul told Timothy to preach the word in every season of life. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, in the ups and the downs and the, and the hard times and in the good times. Paul tells Timothy, you preach the word, you be who you're supposed to be. How bold are you for the cause of Jesus Christ? Here's number three. If I'm going to meet godly expectations, if I'm going to meet the expectations placed on me by my creator, I have to understand I must be willing to endure like Paul. We all know the story of Paul, don't we? We've all studied about Paul before. We know that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Acts 23 and verse 6. We know that he was a killer of Christians, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We know that Paul was going through house to house wreaking havoc among the Lord's church, Acts chapter 8 and verse 3. Certainly Paul was zealous before his conversion. That's an interesting thought. When you think about Paul, he thought he was doing what was right, but when you don't have guidance, when you don't have the right kind of knowledge, the right kind of faith, zeal without that can be very, very dangerous, can't it? Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Paul said, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Acts 22, beginning in verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus, notice this, to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem, to be punished. Acts 26, beginning at verse 10, this I did also in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul, how do you describe yourself? Of whom I am chief. Paul knew the, the bad things that he had done. Paul was not a good person before he met Jesus Christ. He was vengeful. He was violent. He was a killer. And yet, when you read in Acts chapter 9 and then later in the retelling in Acts chapter 22, his life completely changes when he encounters Jesus Christ there on the road to Damascus. And I suppose Paul, perhaps more than most Christians, lived his life with an appreciation for the grace of God. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning of verse 12, Paul said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy 
because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. I suppose it was because of all of the things that Paul later in his life had to go through is what allowed him to be able to endure all of these things. You think about everything that Paul had to go through. The fact that Paul was stoned in Acts chapter 14. How Paul was kidnapped in Acts chapter 21. How Paul was beaten in Acts 21 and then later in Acts chapter 23. We talk about the fact that he was threatened in Acts 22. How he was arrested on several occasions and you see the references there on the screen. He was interrogated, ridiculed, shipwrecked, not to mention all the things that Paul had to go through in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he recounts many of the difficulties that he had to endure for the cause of Jesus Christ, and yet through it all, Paul endured. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is nearing the end of his life, and he was leaving some last-minute instructions for the young preacher Timothy. And he tells Timothy, he says, I want you to preach the word, and I want you to understand that in your preaching of the word, there's going to be some, even though you're preaching the gospel, there's going to be some who turn away. There's going to be some who don't endure but who turn aside to their own lusts and desires. But then he tells Timothy there in verse 5, he says, But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Paul could speak so well to this, couldn't he? Because of everything that he himself had had to endure as he was going through his Christian walk. And having lived his life faithfully enduring everything that came his way, he was able to say there in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In other words, Paul says, look, I've endured I'm able to be at rest. I'm able to go home and to be with my father. You remember back in Philippians chapter 1 there in verse 23, Paul wanted to go home. Paul wanted to go be with his father, but he couldn't because he knew there were things that he needed to do while he was here on this earth. And yet here he is at the end of his life, seeing all of this be able to play out. And in fact, you get to verse 8 and he concludes by saying, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You and I need to look at Paul and be able to endure the things that Paul had to go through, endure the things that we have to go through in this life. That's how I meet the expectations of God. Here's number four, and we'll go through these last couple as quickly as we can. If I'm going to meet godly expectations, I need to be penitent like David. I need to be penitent like David, much like the idea of being moldable. This too takes great humbleness, doesn't it? Because in order to be penitent, it takes someone doing a 100% accurate self-analyzation of their lives and of the mistakes and the sins that they have committed and then having the heart to change. That's what true repentance is, isn't it? Understanding where the wrong is in your life, being willing to fix those things, but then being willing to change your life going forward. This is an expectation placed on us by God. And in Psalm chapter 51, we read about a heart that is full of penitence. In Psalm chapter 51, we read about a heart that is so full of remorse so full of guilt, so full of shame for what that individual had, had done. And yet, it's also a heart that belonged to someone who, like we mentioned at the very beginning of this, back in Acts chapter 13, was someone who was a man after God's own heart. We know the account of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12, don't we? We know that it was time for the kings to go out to war. We know that David didn't go. He wasn't where he needed to be. He was up late one evening, I suppose, unable to sleep. And he sees something that he shouldn't have. 
And instead of turning away and allowing his mind to occupy on a different thought, he lingers. And that lingering leads him to doing something he never should have done, that being committing adultery. But it doesn't stop there. He tries to clean up his mess, doesn't he? He knows the consequences are there. He knows he's done something that he shouldn't have done. And so in the whole process, he also ends up someone who is a liar and also a murderer. And you get into chapter 12, and you read about Nathan the prophet. Nathan approaching David the king, telling him to the face, Thou art the man. And David immediately is filled with remorse. He says there in verse 13, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. David would then go on to pen one of the most beautiful psalms that I think that we have recorded for us today. And it's the one that showcases his penitent heart. Roy Deaver created this outline in his book, and there's so much more to talk about. This is a sermon outline in and of itself. We just don't really have time to dive into it. But you look at verses 1 through 5, and you see David basically offering a plea to God. And it's this plea for mercy, a plea for forgiveness, a plea uh, for cleansing. David knows that, that in his state, with what he has done, he is spiritually dirty and that he needs to be cleansed by God. And thus his plea is made on the grounds of the acknowledgement of his own sin. Paul, or excuse me, David steps up and he says, I've committed this sin. I know what I've done. And I know that I've separated myself from God. He recognized the judgment and the consequences that were there. And so he makes a plea for forgiveness. But then number two, verses 6 through 12, he offers a prayer. A prayer for wisdom. A prayer for cleansing. A prayer for, for joy and for healing. A prayer for a clean heart. And among many other things there within this section of Scripture and within the idea of a penitent heart. Within the idea of someone who is truly remorseful for what they have done. Prayer must be offered to God. Then you have verses 13 through 15. David offers a promise, really a threefold promise. A promise there in this, in this section of scripture, number one, to teach others. Number two, to bring sinners to God. And then number three, to sing praises to, to God, to glorify God in everything that he does. And essentially, David is making this promise to God that from here on out, his life is going to be fully encompassed about it with his, with his creator. And then verses 16 through 19, there's a prescription, really a prescription placed on David by God. And it has to do with this idea of sacrifice, doesn't it? David knows uh, that God doesn't delight in these burnt offerings. That's not the sacrifice that he wants, but rather uh, David knows that it was a sacrifice of self, a sacrifice of a broken heart. That's what God was prescribing, and that is exactly what David was giving penitent like David, an expectation placed upon us with an understanding of the fact that we're not perfect, with an understanding of the fact that we have sinned, Romans 3 and verse 23, but understanding that it's not our habit to do so. And yet when we do, you and I are willing to have a heart like David. Here's number five. Godly expectations placed on me by my creator, I must love like Christ. When we think about Christians, so many things really ought to come to mind. But when we think about these characteristics, these, these traits, much like we've talked about already, things that set us apart, that make us different from the world, there is something I think that stands out above them all, and that is this idea of our love. In John chapter 13, beginning of verse 35, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And in the context of all of this that's going on, Jesus is coming off the heels of having washed the feet of his disciples. He's having washed the feet of the one who's going to betray him. Talking about Judas, Jesus is literally showcasing what it means to be a servant 
and showing what it means to love those around him. And in the midst of all of this, he gets into this dialogue about this new commandment. And if you back up one verse into verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And in other words, what he's talking about, if you couple these two verses together, is he's saying the world is going to know that you belong to me. The world is going to know that we as Christians belong to Jesus simply because of the love that we have for those around us. Brothers and sisters, love ought to be our defining characteristic. That there is something that sets us apart, something that makes us different, something that makes us better than the people who just simply live their lives for the world. That being our love, a love that is mimicking the love that Christ has for us. What about Mark chapter 12? You and I know that as it comes to these characteristics revolving around love, but we also understand that love should be a top priority for us in our lives. It ought to be that which is the most important thing for us. In Mark chapter 12, the scribes have come to Jesus, and they have asked about the first and the greatest commandment. And you remember there, beginning of verse 29, Jesus says, the first of all the commandments is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. But then verse 31, and the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Our top priority must be to love and to respect God. It's the first and the greatest commandment that we have ever been given. And when we live our lives like that, it's amazing to begin to see how we meet all of these other expectations that we're talking about. When you have a love for God, It's truly amazing to watch how your life begins to change. How about Colossians chapter 3? The Apostle Paul is talking about all of these things that are defining us as the elect, as those who are Christians, those who belong to God. And Paul is essentially saying that we as Christians are to put on these characteristics and traits there, beginning in verse 12. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, as Christians, holy and beloved, putting on, Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Paul says, yes, place an emphasis on these characteristics, on these traits. Look at all of these things that we're supposed to do. And yet, he says, there's something that's even greater, something that's even better than these, verse 14. But above all these things, he says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, Above all these things, above everything else, Paul says, I'm not downplaying. I'm not not taking away from the importance of all these other characteristics or traits. But he says, I'm simply showcasing how important love is for us to have in our lives. God expects me to love like Christ. In fact, when you go through the book of Romans, and specifically you look at chapter 5, I know that we look at, when we study Romans chapter 5, we generally look at that section of Scripture from the perspective of, look at what God has done for me. Look at God's love for me, and rightly so. You and I know that in our former life, in our former way of living, we needed that love of God, didn't we? We needed that sacrifice, and it is through God's love for us that Jesus Christ came to this earth, went to the cross, and died for us. But have you ever considered looking at it from the perspective of God? And I'm not saying that you try to make yourself like God. And I'm not saying try to pull God down on your level, but I'm simply saying, Have you ever considered thinking about what it took for God to do what he did for us? Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. When you look at that word demonstrate, it has the idea of recommending or collecting together. And God is taking essentially his agape love, his unconditional love that he has for his creation, and he's putting it all together. And he's demonstrating it, giving it, showing it to his creation. Not to mention the fact that God created this world, that God sustains this world, that God has preserved his perfect word through all of time for you and I to have and to study on a daily basis, despite that he has put into our lives a perfect pattern of how to live our lives. Even with all of that, he's granted us through his grace the opportunity for salvation. And within that, it is the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. This idea is literally the grand theme of God's eternal plan, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. You and I know that as free moral agents, he knew that as free moral agents, you and I would sin. He understood that the blood of bulls and goats would never suffice, Hebrews chapter, chapter 10 and verse 4, and thus the sacrifice of a perfect lamb, talking about Jesus Christ, was necessary. That's the, at the heart of the message of the Bible. And without it, there certainly would be no hope for any single person. When you and I were so low, when we were so encompassed about with sin, love lifted you and me. It granted us an opportunity for a fresh start. It gave us an opportunity for heaven. It's a debt that you and I could never repay. And if we truly think about it, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus Christ to that cross, but rather it was his love for you and for me. The song Love Lifted Me was penned by a man by the name of James Rowe. And it's uh, inspired really from two passages in Scripture, one from Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus uh, was sleeping during the storm, and then also from Matthew chapter 14 whenever the apostles were there uh, in the boat on the water and it was stormy as well. And it's the idea of being so sunk and so deep within our worries, within our woes, within our hardships, struggles, and turmoils. And even through all of that, we understand that Jesus is there to lift us out. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Souls in danger, look above, Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. But the master of the sea billows his will obey. He, your Savior, wants to be, be saved today. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Suppose if there was one underlying theme going from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and even continuing on into our lives today, it is this idea of God's love for his creation. You and I can understand that. We can know that because each of us have the opportunity to be able to put him on it, put Christ on in baptism, and to know that we are on our way to heaven. Maybe that's the case for you this evening, and maybe you need to take that first step. Maybe you need to give your life over to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here and you're willing to submit yourself to him, to his commands, and you want to live your life for him. Know that you can do that this evening. You can come forward, repent of your sins, and you can put Christ on in baptism. Being immersed into water, that water representing Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, and you can go on your way, starting out your, your new year, knowing that you are on your way to heaven. Maybe you're here this evening and maybe you are a Christian. Maybe your life's not what it should be. Perhaps there is something that is amiss in your life. Maybe you haven't been meeting these expectations that God has placed on you. And maybe you want to give your life back to him, rededicate yourself, 
and know that you are also on your way to heaven. If you have a need this evening, won't you come? As together we stand and as we sing. Thank you for listening to this recorded audio of a sermon that was preached at the Roanoke Church of Christ. If you would like to visit us, you can do so at 608 Dallas Drive, Roanoke, Texas, 76262, or you can visit our website at roanokechurchofchrist.org. We hope to see you soon, and may God bless you.